Welcome to the Hey Salespeople podcast, where we focus on delivering immediately actionable best practices for sales professionals. I'm your host, Jeremy Donovan from SalesLoft. Today, our guest is James Ski. James is the founder of Sales Confidence. They're the largest network of SaaS leaders and sales professionals in the UK. Welcome to the show, James. Good afternoon, Jeremy. Good to be here. Thank you for having me. I always love to start by delivering immediately on our promise of value to listeners by asking our guests their favorite sales or leadership book and to talk a little bit about what impact that had on you, what you got out of it. Absolutely. So for me, I had a keen interest in sales from a very young age. So I discovered leadership and sales books at about the age of 15, 16. Thinking about that question, the book that really stood out for me was How to Win Friends and Influence People. The reason being is because it's very well structured and it has clear ways of laying out how you should approach influencing and persuading people. And the key thing that stands out for me is genuinely having an interest in somebody, genuinely seeking to understand their needs and care about what they are saying by being a good listener. And typically, when you think about sales in an early stage of your life or career, is you believe it's a lot to do with talking. And it was the first time I really was able to read something and reflect on the importance of listening as a skill. I wish I had discovered that book back at that age. I was I was sadly not reading much uh, until then. In fact, I didn't read my first book cover to cover until I was 15 years old, believe it or not. I think that's so interesting that the most influential people actually are the ones who, in some ways, are doing the least, right? Like they're not talking, they're just listening. For me, it's something that I've significantly noticed while navigating my sales career, that the more senior the individual in the organization or in the meeting, the less they say. I've seen it work extremely well. I had the opportunity to work for a chap called Simon O'Kane, who was Mark Benioff's first hire outside of the US. And it was noticeable how much he would spend time reflecting and listening on the conversation. And then when he did speak, what he delivered would be impactful. And that's a key difference in someone that's really developed their skills around influencing and persuading individuals. And that book, How to Win Friends and Influence People, talks a lot around that area. We're talking about leaders, and it's also so true for salespeople. I know there's some great research from Chris Orlob over at Gong, and he's looked at the percentage of talk time versus listen time for salespeople. And I think the optimal talk time for a salesperson during a sales call is something like 48% of the call. And I listen and review so many sales calls, or I'm on the receiving end of sales calls where salespeople just dominate the conversation and they don't realize if they just ask me questions, I'd be very happy to explain what I'm trying to solve. It's often hard though, when you're hitting the phones and someone eventually picks up, you feel like you need to unload your entire sales script um, without actually pausing. And the ability to pause and then ask questions, something that needs to be reinforced across many sales organizations, I think. Yeah, brilliant. One more question for you, and it, I guess it relates, I guess, to selling in the UK, but what was the first thing you ever remember selling? My actual first role 
doing some kind of formal sales was knocking on people's doors, persuading them to have their milk delivered. Bear in mind, this was in the kind of early 2000s when pretty much everyone picked up their milk from the local supermarket. I assume the pitch there on the milk, I mean, I'm trying to think of how that would work here, that there's definitely a segment here where the local farm thing is the key, right? It's local, it's organic. Was that the pitch or were you pitching convenience? Absolutely. It was the local farm and also supporting an industry, you know, that was on its knees, but you would always be able to comment. Say, you often must drive around your local street and sell the milkman or the milk van. You know, we want to keep that alive. That's something very British. And by you getting involved in starting to have your milk delivered, even if it's only a few pints a week, that plays a role in supporting your local community. Yeah, that pitch would work here too. So again, I'd love to learn a little bit about what it's like to sell in the UK, and especially for US-based listeners who wonder what's different. Do the same techniques, the same approaches work there? So maybe you know, as we go through your background and what you learned in each of the roles that you've been with respect to selling, I can sort of weigh in on whether those sorts of things work in the US as well and what's different. I think that'd be a great way to go through it. Your first job was at a company called Obit Telecom. Is that right? Yeah, that's correct. It was a traditional telecoms reseller. Got it. And what were you doing there? It was very much an SDR type role. It was very much a a cold calling role. You went to school for business innovation degree. I would presume you weren't taught how to cold call and engage people other than reading how to win friends and influence people. So, So how did you learn to do that job? By doing, simply. I remember the very first day that I arrived, and I was super excited that this was my first professional sales role. I met my manager, and he explained to me that there was a list of companies based in the west of England. Here were all the names. These were all the phone numbers. He gave me a printout of a piece of paper, which was the pitch, pointed at the phone, and he told me to pick it up and start dialing. So I remember the fear, the level of anxiety that I felt. I can even access that feeling now. I was so overwhelmed and so nervous that the very first time someone actually answered and said, hello, who's it speaking? I actually just hung up (laughs) because I was too nervous about having to deliver a pitch. And this went on a few times over the first few weeks until I started to build up that muscle and feel comfortable with the volume of calls, the conversation, and being able to pick up key triggers that can influence someone to spend time with you. I think this is often something that is forgotten, those very first calls are not really to sell your solution or pitch your product, in my opinion. You're pitching yourself and asking for someone's time and you're asking for their attention. And if they're willing then to give you up some time on that initial call or the second call, you then have the opportunity to pitch, explain, ask questions, understand their needs. But it took me a while to understand that. So it was just often a very hard pitch, not understanding how to follow up and ask the right questions. That meant people would hear the pitch and quickly answer with no thank you. 
So it also taught me a lot about kind of overcoming objections and doing it at speed as well. I guess with the pitch that you were handed, I mean, obviously nobody wants to read a script. I would assume at first you were probably reading the script just because you had no, you didn't know better. And then over time you began to internalize what the value proposition was, what the messaging was and so on. Yeah, absolutely. Did you find that the pitch they gave you was too long? I, I often find that that's the case, that the starter pitch is just way too long. Yeah, it's very kind of corporatized, if that's even a word. It, there's way too much me on the page. And often you find that lengthy introduction about yourself or the company is unnecessary. And much of it is to do with your tone of voice and the enthusiasm and the energy that you deliver to capture their interest and then pausing and giving them time to adjust to the fact that they're having this conversation. For me, it's breaking the ice, like you would if you approach someone in a networking event. Often the caller on the end of the phone will not remember what is said in those first initial few seconds, but they need to feel something. They need to feel like this is a person that has some form of authority and create curiosity which then allows that individual to create time. And then you have time. And once you've got time in their attention, you can begin to thread the pitch with questions. Can you really deliver value on a first cold call? Or if you do, like what would you do to deliver value or engage them with value? I genuinely feel that the rapport and the connection, that human connection and authenticity will allow them to sit back and feel comfortable. And once an individual feels comfortable, then they're willing to listen. I actually think it's quite difficult on that call to immediately add value when they've got no context on where you're coming from. Now, I do agree with personalization. So I do agree with leading with some information that you already understand about that individual, that company, but I also feel like you have to be realistic and what is achievable if you have interrupted their day. Now, it's very different if you've teed that call up with an email introduction and that call's scheduled in the diary. But if you've interrupted the flow of their day, there's limited time for you to fulfill your need to get that next step. So for me, the less time, the better. But the commitment and the call to action where they agree to set some time aside and having that second call conversation is key. What I find in early stage software businesses in the UK, where maybe the founders don't have a commercial sales background, often it's engineering, and they've probably read a few books like Predictable Revenue, their belief is they can just hire some SDRs that are going to make a high volume of calls and immediately book a demo that that individual is going to turn up to. For me, the second call Actually, getting an agreement to have a second call where you then add value, understand their needs, influence them towards your value proposition, and then agree the demo has a huge impact on the conversion rate of calls to demos to then creating pipeline. A lot of folks in the US, they don't understand GDPR and they worry that GDPR means you can't do what you described that you were doing back in the 2009-2010 timeframe where you get a list of phone numbers to call, emails to email. 
are there restrictions in being able to pick up the phone and call people in the UK or, or send emails to people? Well, I can't pretend to be an absolute expert in GDPR. One thing I will say that there was a huge amount of hype and scaremongering around GDPR. And I noticed it's impacted US businesses strategy. Like, wow, we don't even want to take that risk. We're actually going to stop doing business in the UK. I think it's very much settled down. Um, your data sources have to be qualified from some source, but the business number that is on a company's website, it's public information. It's publicly available. We're not talking about speaking to an individual in their home or that initial call being their mobile necessarily if they haven't opted into something. So actually, um, for me, and I would suggest people go naturally and do, do their research, but I actually feel that the ability to still pick up the phone and dial a business number and create interest for your business is still the same. So it sounds like the phone is okay, which is good, just like here. Here, the government is contemplating stricter guidelines, but they also recognize, I think, though it's not talked about enough, that you would grind business to a halt if you outlawed all cold calling. And ditto with email. You know, there's always these debates about having opt-in only, but it would do the exact same thing. So are emails fine as well, even if it's not an opt-in email? It is still legal and it's very much effective to send business sales emails. However, what you do with the personal data, adding someone to a newsletter subscription without their opt-in, that's very much a no-no. But you doing a number of outreaches, they look at does the type of service you're offering fit the needs of a business buyer? Well, yes, you would expect that individual is in business to buy. So there is some kind of fear. Absolutely is still something that you're able to do. Where people would need to qualify that is how often you're hitting someone in terms of those number of touches. But you definitely can still make outreach to individuals and you can still pick up the phone to call individuals in their office. I presume many UK professionals are on LinkedIn. Is that the social, the business social network of choice over there as well? Absolutely. I was a fan of LinkedIn when I was in a recruitment role to network and connect with professionals. And I was very fortunate to actually find myself working for LinkedIn directly for about three and a half years. And for about 12 months, I was the number one social seller at LinkedIn, on LinkedIn in the world. So I'm very passionate about um, LinkedIn as a tool for sales professionals. It's absolutely an opt-in platform. Since um, the developments around content, the level of engagement on LinkedIn has never been so high. Also following the acquisition by Microsoft, generally in the public's consciousness in the UK, it is very commonplace to understand that you should absolutely have a LinkedIn profile. If you're entering the workforce from school or university, those institutions are educating you on LinkedIn. So it's almost like a rite of passage that you should have a LinkedIn profile. And because everybody's opted into the user agreement, for me, it is one of the most effective ways to do business in the UK. I would not have had the success in creating 
the sales confidence network without the reach that LinkedIn has allowed me. So it's a significant tool. You mentioned social selling. That term is both loved and hated because it's left to such broad interpretation. What does social selling mean to you in general and maybe social selling specifically? What sorts of tactics work in the UK? Fundamentally, just around cold calling to begin with, I believe every calls are warm. Because when I pick up the phone and have a conversation with you, I'm a human being, I'm breathing, you're breathing. So for me, actually, as a mindset, cold calling doesn't exist. I've only ever done warm calling. From a social selling perspective, you are breaking the ice before you have a either physical contact or verbal communication, i.e. over the phone contact. So you are sowing the seeds in an individual's mind about you as an individual, that you exist, that you work for a company, that you have some form of solution. And it's a much softer way to build relationships to make that very first contact, call or face-to-face, much warmer. So fundamentally, it's about building the relationship online. It's about providing insights and value to the point we were talking about earlier. And it's also very much creating familiarity with you as an individual. And that's why your face and having the profile is so important. So you may have heard that when you look at a photo of your family or a group of colleagues or your friend, the first face you focus on is yourself. There's studies that prove that you look at your face first, even if it's your beautiful children there. So we're very much wired to connect with a human face and feel comfortable with interacting with that face, even if it's in an interactive digital format. So the more times from a social perspective that you can do some outreach via a LinkedIn email, like and comment on your target buyer's content, those touch points build up and there's already some sense of familiarity. So the barriers come down and it's easier to create trust, connection and rapport with an individual. Yeah, in our engagement cadences, we have two social touches. We basically start soft. We will like or comment on someone's post just to basically provide some degree of value to them, right? If someone likes your post, you know, that's a good thing. If someone comments on it, that's even better. But we do that first touch, which is a sort of soft touch that adds value and is not asking anything of them. It's just giving to them. And then once we're about halfway through the cadence, we'll do a connection request, but with a super light, personalized sentence or two of just framing why we're connecting. What I don't like, and I know does not work particularly well in the US, right, is someone will connect with me just out of the blue. And then the next thing I get is like a half page long in mail. I would assume that that's also bad practice over there. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's terrible. I think also, I really find that the bravado of individuals that put out a calendar link in their first connection request as if I'm so much in need for their service that I'm going to just because they've connected with me and I do not know who they are, their business, but because they provided their calendar, I'm somehow going to book a call. 
Like, I think that's a, a that's a big ask. The easiest way to get somebody to accept your connection request is naturally to personalize it. And that information is on LinkedIn. So I don't see how that's so difficult for an individual to do. And secondly, if you can name drop a mutual connection, that immediately, again, crosses the barrier of having to think if you're credible. Well, someone's already demonstrated that you are and have suggested that I should connect with you because we both know Sean Murray, for example. You're much more likely um, to connect with that, even beyond the personalization of it looks like you've been at sales law for X number of months. Uh, you know, we have a solution that supports sales leaders. So for me, the strength of the name and the correct name drop in the network is highly valuable. You were just talking about the calendar link. And there, I, I'm with you completely. If someone were to put a calendar link in any sort of LinkedIn communication, I would feel that that was just not acceptable. However, what about in, in a first email touch, right, where, where you are trying to secure a meeting? Do you avoid a, a calendar link in the very first email touch as well? I really dislike it, to be honest. And I've noticed the younger generation they're habitually using it more often. I feel it's a lack of control. You're giving over control to individual that you're reaching out to decide when that call should be happening. And arguably, the argument is, well, this is personalization and you know we want to um, give that buyer an opportunity. But I believe in managing my own time. And I still feel like um, controlling the sales process is the responsibility of a sales professional. Also, that's a lot of effort for someone to go into your diary and figure out when they should fit, when I feel like you should be actually doing a little bit more work to suggest sometimes. And that's a personal opinion. I mean, I can see the efficiency and believe me, I have clicked people's links, but I'm often pushed back and say, look, can you just let me know the two time slots you're available um, and then we'll match up on that. I'm with you on that. Yeah, I'm totally with you on that. And I do think there are a lot of technologies, whether it's in a sales enablement platform like SalesLoft or in other things that are out there, do have that functionality because precisely because I think it is frustrating. I, I know that personally that if someone just sends me a calendar link, I, I kind of roll my eyes because it is effortful to go and look at my calendar as opposed to looking at a specific time. So, so I'm totally with you on that. The fourth engagement channel that we didn't talk about yet is is texting. In the U.S., to get a text at the beginning of the sales cycle, right, as a, as a warm touch, cold or warm touch, however you want to define it, that's extremely off-putting, right? You're not expecting that, and it feels like a, a much bigger invasion than a call or an email. Is that true in the UK as well? Yeah, I would agree. Um, people are very sensitive to how you have got their mobile number. I love text messages. I feel like they're so underused, actually, in the sales process because of email and the phone um, from a call perspective, most people still leave the text alert on because they, they're less regular versus their kind of WhatsApp and their Facebook Messenger and their Instagram or whatever else they have on their phone where you maybe kind of adjust the alerts. I'd actually personally like to see a lot more texts when everyone's trying to get me through email and LinkedIn. The person that gets me on text generally gets me. So there's a uh, billboard. If you're trying to sell to me, just text me. I presume you're not going to give uh, all of our listeners your mobile number. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I do want to dive into so much of what we talked about. So there's even more layers of where there you know, might or might not be differences. And again, I'm heartened by how few differences there are. Uh, one thing you mentioned is face-to-face -face selling. 
in the U.S., I would say, you know, there's definitely the move, obviously, towards more inside sales because it's a more efficient, cost-effective, and, and focused thing to do. What do you think about in terms of, you know, what's possible for inside sales versus face-to-face field selling in the U.K. in terms of the, the dollar amount, if that makes sense? Naturally, from a geographic perspective, you can pretty much get halfway up England on a train in a couple of hours. So generally, there is a much higher expectation that you should be able to meet someone face-to-face early on in an engagement. And I do feel like it adds a huge amount of weight when also you're introducing your team. Very much, it still holds huge weight to meet people face-to-face. I think transactionally, anything below £10,000 to a kind of a mid-sized organization is achievable over the phone without having that face-to-face contact. But surprisingly, even at a kind of a $10,000, K, $15,000 type deal, that final sign-off may require you and will happen quicker if you do make that contact. Overall, when I first entered the software space about eight years ago, high volume deals were like kind of three to five thousand pounds. Um, so, you know, seven or eight thousand dollar deals, but it, it hit a ceiling quite quickly. The need to actually invest in interacting with people face to face here is definitely much, much more. And I still feel it's very much expected as part of the process, um, even at that lower level of investment, I, just above the 10K mark, to go and shake someone's hand is actually still pretty critical. That definitely sounds like a key difference, at least in terms of deal magnitude of where you need to get involved face-to-face. Is that also a relationship thing? I mean, you hear about certain cultures where you can't even talk business you know, for the first several meetings. Is that a requirement or can you talk business from day one? Here, you have to be more subtle. Like getting someone to join a demo, which is critically important. We know the stats around the number of buyers, seven plus in the buyer journey to close a deal. And the more people you can get onto a demo, the sooner the better. To actually get someone to just go into their network internally within their organization and persuade them to get on the phone is a big ask here, unless they haven't met you and there's a relationship and they feel that you're going to offer that credibility. Where I feel like the idea of getting on a demo in the US and sending that around and getting other influencers on that demo is, is more realistic. I don't think it's as easy as here at all. I'm I'm right on with you. If you were advising a U.S. company who was looking to expand their presence in the U.K., what's the main one or two or three pieces of advice you would give them when when setting up shop there and going to market in the U.K.? So one is, um, you know, come here. <laughs> Actually, you know, spend some time on the ground before you make some of your decisions. You know, you need to actually get a feel for um, the area that you're looking to base yourself in. There's an organization called um, London and Partners, which are the mayor's promotional arm, promoting London as a place to do business. I recommend everybody that wants to do business in the UK make contact with them. I also recommend that they speak to me. I'm happy to have a conversation. Part of the relationship that we're building. With Salesloft is supporting a community of peers in this network. 
in the UK so that we can share information on the on the best ways to land. And actually, um, just on Rainmaker, I had an amazing experience over there. I, I felt that the humility of the business people and professionals I met was very strong. And it's inspired me when I'm thinking about SAS Growth, which is the conference in July in London on the 3rd of July. It's, it's London's leading B2B sales conference and how to create an experience for people where they feel comfortable to be vulnerable. I felt Rainmaker did a fantastic job of, of doing that. Um, but you need to tap into the communities here and you need to be familiar with the ways of doing business. So an organization like London Partners can support that. Communities like um, Sales Confidence can help you land here. But also remember that people want to get to know you. And so having time with those individuals and actually socializing yourself into the London culture is going to be very important when you think of building your teams here. Thank you for the uh, super actionable advice. Well, it sounds like people can meet you at SAS Growth 2019 on, uh, on July 3rd there in London. How else can folks get in touch with you? Check out um, www.salesconfidence.com and also LinkedIn. Connect with me on LinkedIn. Mention that you've heard this conversation on the podcast. It's, it's James Ski, uh, and I'm very much happy to engage your audience when they're thinking about landing here. I'm proud of the work that we are doing with Sales Loft and others, and I'm just generally excited to promote London, particularly with all of the noise around Brexit, is still an amazing um, place to do business. And we didn't really touch on that, but I can put that to the side and say, look. It's still fantastic to come here and the environment to access the rest of Europe, which would probably be another podcast, is first class. Well, wonderful. Well, thanks again so much for your time today. My guest today has been James Ski, the founder of Sales Confidence. Again, they're the largest network of SaaS leaders and sales professionals in the UK. Thanks so much for listening to the Hey Salespeople podcast. Once again, I'm your host, Jeremy Donovan from SalesLoft. Laura Hall is our executive producer. Our artwork is by Greg Klinkshern. This episode was edited by Peter Lopinto. Subscribe to us on your favorite app to learn more immediately actionable best practices from our awesome guests. Thank you for listening to the Hey Salespeople podcast.